And if you could, if you please could turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. So Isaiah 7, beginning at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask ask a sign of the Lord, your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, Is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The word of the Lord. Amen. Well, I recognize that I have uh, jumped in, um, you know, in the middle of a section in Isaiah 7, uh, but there would be quite a lot of background to give if I were to read uh, much more than that. But this morning, as we come to our first Sunday of Advent, I want us to perhaps just pause and reflect on the idea of having heard messages from Isaiah 7 or Matthew or Luke or Isaiah 9, or other passages of Scripture that focus on the birth of Christ year after year after year. And I guess it's a bit like our psalm sings. When we have the opportunity to choose a psalm to sing in our psalm sings, some of us will choose a psalm that we like singing a lot. And so we choose it again and again because the words are great, it sings well, there's multiple reasons. But for others, it could be the very first time Uh, that they hear that psalm. And so in the same way as we come to Isaiah 7, uh, with a mixed congregation of young and old, some of you have heard this multiple times, and others perhaps only once or twice. And so as we come back uh, to uh, Isaiah chapter 7 this morning, um, wherever you have heard it before, let us remind ourselves of just how great the promise of God actually is. Now, with America, I believe, um, voting next year on a new president, and of course other nations around the world will also be appointing their leaders at different times, this is a good reminder that a nation is never to put their trust entirely in the leaders that they have, or at all, if the leaders are rejecting the Lord God. And so the idea of putting your trust in kings or princes or governors or prime ministers or presidents um, are not the type of people that we should ever put our trust in, but they are the very people who should be putting their trust in the Lord. And of course, when they don't, the whole nation, the whole country, uh, globally even, we can suffer. And this is the state of King Ahaz that Ahaz has been confronted with Isaiah, 
a man who has a position given to him by God, that is Isaiah is a prophet, and Ahaz who has a different position given to him by God, which is a king, both of which should be responding to the Lord's word uh, with both joy and recognize the blessing that it is. But Ahaz does not receive the word of the Lord. He does not put his trust in the Lord his God. Instead, he puts it in other kings, princes, governors, whoever it is that can, he can form an alliance with. And of course, this then raises the very serious question of how does God become king? Now, in one sense, God is already king. But in another real sense, God does become king in the person of Christ Jesus. God has to come and establish his kingdom because the earthly kingdom that was set up in many ways does not fit the bill. It cannot accomplish that which only God can. And so we are waiting for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ promised uh, through Isaiah here to a King Ahaz. And it is a promise by which uh, Jesus uh, is the King of Kings, that when he is born, it is the birth of a king. And so what Isaiah 7 anticipates is how God becomes king. God is already king, of course. He is the king of kings and all other kings serve under him. But in a very real sense, in the birth of Christ, we have the birth of the king. Now, Isaiah's language is most notable here because in verse 10, he calls upon Ahaz uh, to ask for a sign from the Lord your God. And so Isaiah is associating the Lord God with Ahaz as though these people have a relationship, that God is the God of Ahaz, and Ahaz recognizes that the Lord God is his God. But then further down, you will notice the word <clears throat> your is changed to mine in verse 13. And he said then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Isaiah changes his language as he speaks to a king who has changed his allegiance. And this is really the background of what we see. So let me just simply put it if I can. Ahaz and all of Jerusalem is in trouble. It is a time of crisis. They are under the threat of Syria and Ephraim. Uh, the enemies want to destroy Ahaz and want to destroy Jerusalem. And Ahaz, instead of turning and putting his trust in the Lord, his God, instead has put his trust in the king of Assyria. He has even given gold to the king of Assyria from the temple. And so Isaiah brings this word of the Lord to Ahaz. And he begins by stating that the God that belongs to Isaiah is the same God that belongs to Ahaz. But the moment Ahaz rejects the word of the Lord, then he is no longer Ahaz's God. Uh, Isaiah's language changes to he is just my God, showing that the moment Ahaz changes his allegiance from the Lord God 
to political allegiances, then he also no longer becomes uh, on the same page theologically, biblically, historically as Isaiah. They have become separated at this point. And so what we see is that God, through the prophet Isaiah, is trying to cultivate faithfulness in Ahaz as a means of persuading him not to turn from God to others, to not turn from God to other kings, to not turn from God in a time of crisis. And so the covenant made with the house of David is one which clearly seeks to cultivate faithfulness in covenant members. And every, every Old Testament covenant, all of which there is one leading to Christ, is trying to cultivate the faithfulness of God's people to God. And so one of the greatest promises found in all the covenants is that the Lord your God is your God and you are his people. That is the foundation of all the covenants in the Old Testament leading us to the person of Christ. You belong to God and God belongs to you. And that changes everything that we think, believe and do as the people of God. We cannot help but trust in the greatness of God. And so for Ahaz to turn his back on God, he is not only turning his back on God, but turning his back on the people of God. Because at the very heart of the covenant is that you are my God, and God, we are your people. And so for Ahaz to trust in a political allegiance is to turn away from both the people of God and God himself. And so this is particularly striking uh, when we actually look at the words, your God, and how they change when Isaiah says, my God. We notice this separation happen in the very words that God is speaking to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. And so we must always remember that the reason God moves into covenant with his people is not only for us to recognize who our God is, but to recognize that we belong to God. And that very relationship should cultivate faithfulness to God in every sphere of our life. This is what Isaiah's message is trying to do with Ahaz. But what becomes apparent is that Ahaz's heart and mind is clearly hardened towards the things of God. He even says that he will not put the Lord to the test as a way of justifying his own decision of not trusting in the Lord. He's trying to go out of his way to demonstrate that he's not going to trust uh, the Lord and not do it in the way that he has been called to. And so when Ahaz is called to ask for a sign and does not, that sign which should have been given to a person in faithfulness is now given to a person in unfaithfulness. And this is important, that the first promise of Emmanuel given in Isaiah's day to the prophet Ahaz, which was meant to be received in a time of joy and a time of confidence in the Lord, is actually received or heard by a person who is entirely unfaithful. And so the first promise of Emmanuel to Ahaz is a promise of how God will come. 
that God will come and be king essentially because you are not being a good one. Now, of course, there is more to it than that, and I'm simplifying, but this is essentially the, the message behind the message, that God will come and be king. God with us is that the king is coming. And so as we go further down, Ahaz says, uh, as I said before, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to a test. And then the response is, hear then, O house of David, verse 13, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God? Ahaz no longer finds himself on the same side of faithfulness as Isaiah. Ahaz no longer finds himself on the same side as God at all. And so the message which should have been a form of confidence for Ahaz is now a form of promise which actually shows out over time that kings who do not obey the Lord their God will be brought to an end. And a nation that does not obey the Lord God will become, will be brought to an end. And so the moment Ahaz turns to others thinking that they are viable alternatives, he is creating a sin that separates him from the Lord his God. Now this, of course, takes his time to work out in history. But the point is the same. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the type of response that the Lord God was expecting to receive from Ahaz. As for me and everyone else, this is what we will do. It is part of the Davidic covenant for the faithfulness of God's people to be cultivated. Only it isn't. And so the sign that is given is given at a time of unfaithfulness. The promise of Emmanuel that God will become king is given to someone who is rejecting the position that he has actually been given by God to serve God. And so now it begins to make sense how God can become king or why the birth of Christ is the birth of a king. Because now we recognize that the coming of God is not just for the comfort of his people, but it is for the rule of all. Jesus comes to rule, not just to comfort, but he comes to rule over all. And so the sign that a virgin shall conceive is important language. So I know that it's tempting, especially this time of year, to speak in terms of the virgin birth. But if you think about that, it doesn't really make sense um, because it is the conception part which is part of the greater promise. So Genesis 3.15, that the Savior will come via the seed of a woman, is the idea of conception, not the idea of birth. Because it is just not possible for a woman to conceive, um, unless, of course, in this case, it is that she is conceived of the Holy Ghost that it is the work of God in the life of Mary that brings about Emmanuel, God being with us. And so it's probably not wrong uh, to speak of the virgin birth, but it's not truly clear what you mean. What we mean is that the promise is that a virgin shall conceive. And that takes us back to Genesis 3.15 with the first promise of Christ, the serpent crusher, is one 
who will be born of the seed of a woman. Again, it's that conception language. And the name given is Emmanuel, because God is the one who comes. And so I want us to think this morning, this afternoon, um, about what it means for God to be with us. So we know what the name means. Emmanuel means God with us. But what does it mean for God to be with us? Because they're, they're different questions. They're different points. Emmanuel means God with us. But what does it mean for God to be with us? Well, it is a source of comfort. It is a source of security. But it is also a source of total rule. That when God becomes king, the king of kings, the reason why it is such a threat to those who do not follow the Lord God is because it is the ultimate rule. The ultimate ruler is coming. And of course, the name Emmanuel only shows up three times in scriptures, twice in Isaiah and once in Matthew, to show us that the one who comes is not only one who will save, but one who will rule over all. Jesus will rule over all. That's what it means for God to be with us. Not just a source of comfort, not just a source of security, but a source of living under the rule of the King of Kings. A comfort to those who receive the King and a stumbling block to those who do not. And so recognize that when Isaiah is challenging Ahaz in the way that he is, that Ahaz is in the line of David's throne from which the king of kings will come. But unlike David, who was a man after God's own heart, yes, he sinned multiple times, but unlike David, Ahaz's heart has hardened towards the Lord his God. He is unwilling to ask for a sign, even though he has been told to. I mean, what more confidence could you have than for God to tell you to do something and do it knowing that God is the one who's actually put the thought, put the idea, put the impetus in you to ask for it. It's like being told that you will receive before you have even asked. And yet Ahaz, knowing this, does not ask. And so his faithlessness is a faithlessness that is first seen by his rejection of the word of God. And that's what it highlights, that what Ahaz is actually rejecting is God, but he is the way that it pans out, the way that you get to see it, is that it is seen in a person who rejects the word of God. And that, of course, highlights the second part of his faithfulness, in that he does not consider the faithfulness of the Lord in times past. Because when you reject the Lord, you've not, you're not listening to what the Lord God has said. You're not listening to what he has done in the past. And so you have no reason to put your confidence in the Lord your God in the future because you've paid no attention to what the Lord your God has done in the past. And when that happens, you then begin to switch your allegiance from God to other things. Believing or even hoping that others can do for you what only God can actually do. It seems like a simple sin to avoid. 
doesn't it? That when you truly understand, and this is how simple the sin is, when you truly understand that there are no viable alternatives to trusting God, there's no viable alternatives to God, it seems like such a simple sin to commit to then turn to others because it makes no sense to do so. But this is exactly what Ahaz does. And I don't want to be too hard on him as if to say that he is the only type of person who commit that type of sin. But how often have you and how often have I, how often have we trusted in other things, plans, uh, as though they are viable alternatives? How many times have we been in a point of crisis where instead of actually turning to the Lord, we actually turn to our own strengths, our own source sense of mastery, or rather put our trust in others, or in our finances, or in political change of a nation? How often have we made the mistake in thinking that these are the things which will bring about the things which only God can do? So Ahaz is committing a simple sin, but it is one that has dire consequences. But it is the same sin that we commit so often. Instead of trusting in the Lord, we for some reason believe that there are viable alternatives to faith in God. And it makes no sense. It makes no sense to think that trusting in this, that or the other is a viable alternative to God. And yet it is so often that we have committed that same sin. And so the lesson is simple. We are always to trust in God, whatever the crisis, whatever the situation, whatever the pressures, because there are no viable alternatives than God. But that's not the reason. That explains the consequence. The reason is because by faith we please God. And if our relationship with God is one where we recognize that he is our God and we are his people, our first priority is to cultivate faithfulness by which we do everything out of love for God. But even if we don't get there, we ought to be able to recognize the rationale, biblical rationale, that there are no viable alternatives to God. There is nowhere else where we can go and be safe. There is nowhere where we can run from the King of King who will rule over all. And so what we recognize here in King Ahaz is that because of his position, he is more prone to perhaps this type of sin than we are at this level in directing a whole nation because he is the king. And so his alliance with others is not only a rejection of the Lord God, who is the king of kings, but it is a rejection of his God-appointed role, that he is not serving God in the role that he has been given. And so there will come a time where we will need a new king. The only time bad kings go away is when they die. And every time we have a good king, the one thing that we need more than anything else is for the good king to live forever. And the trouble is they die as well. 
And so you have this perpetual cycle like you do in the time of judges, where every time there's a good judge, the people are good. Every time there's a bad judge, the people are bad. And what you're longing for is a good and perfect judge who will last forever. And then, of course, you get to the kings, and every time there is a bad king, the people are bad, generally speaking, because there's no faithfulness to follow. And every time there is a good king, the people, you know, reform, but then they die. And so you have this perpetual cycle of good and bad and good and bad. And so what the nation longs for is that which only God can give, a good and perfect judge and king who can rule forever. That's Emmanuel. That's how, that's how and why God becomes king. God comes to rule. So let's look at a few circumstances. Now we understand that God is the eternal king of everything and everywhere. We must recognize that when the king comes, it does not protect him from the world in which he enters into. And we see this in Matthew. The parents have to flee. They have to protect the son that has been given. And as the son grows up, he grows up in the same type of world that Ahaz lives in, a world that opposes God. And so even though God comes, he comes into the very world, the same world that Ahaz lives in, generally speaking and suffers in much the same way, but he demonstrates to us what faithfulness to God looks like. And so we recognize in the person of Christ that it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, it doesn't matter what the pressures are, the only way of life that cultivates faithfulness is a life that keeps true to the covenant that God has made. And so we, as a people of God, must never respond to the pressures that we feel by believing that there are viable alternatives to trusting God. There are not. As you young children grow up and wonder what you're going to do in the future, believe and understand that you will serve the Lord your God for good or for ill in a world which he rules. And it's better to be on the Lord's side than it is to make the terrible sin that Ahaz made and set yourself against the Lord your God. Because this is what Ahaz does. He does not find himself on the same side as the Lord his God. Well, here's the exhortation as we close. The exhortation is simple. You are to leave here being utterly convinced that there are no viable alternatives to faith in God. This is how you are to live. You are not to put your trust in kings, princes, governors, prime ministers, presidents, or any other thing that you can lay your hand or mind on. God is the trustworthy one. You are to trust in the trustworthy one. You are to have faith in the faithful one because God is constantly in your life, even this very day, trying to cultivate faithfulness in his covenant people. God is forever cultivating the faithfulness of his covenant people so that they would be faithful in thought, in word, and in deed. And so whatever the concerns are, whatever the pressures are, there are no viable alternatives to trusting God. So never forget the promise. 
that the sign of Emmanuel is God being with you, ruling over you, cultivating faithfulness in you to bring you to the happy conclusion of eternal life with God. To put this another way, the stone that the builders rejected has become both the cornerstone and the stumbling block. Your response to the message of the Lord will put you on one side or the other, just like it did with King Ahaz. Your response to the Lord calling you to come to Emmanuel, to trust in him and in him alone, will either put you on one side or the other. You will either have your life built on the cornerstone or you will find yourself stumbling because you have rejected the Lord your God. And so it's simple. There are no viable alternatives. How often we commit that sin of believing that there are, there are none. And so the message to Ahaz is a message to a nation. It is a message to every political leader. It is a message to every husband, to every wife, and to every child in this church. There are no viable alternatives to your trust in God, to your faithfulness to God, because God is your God and you are his people. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word which speaks to us with a clarity of reminding us who you are and how sinful it is for us to forget what you have spoken and what you have done. We pray, Father God, that we would never find ourselves in Ahaz's position in trusting in other things than you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.